How do we create more sustainable businesses and a sustainable world? With listeners in 53 countries over six continents, Sustainable the Podcast aims to explore exactly that. Join our host, Tabby Jane, founder of EarthSelf, as she interviews inspirational leaders who are helping to reconnect business back to nature. Discover new ways of working. Be inspired to take action. In episode 76, I spoke with Jonathan Trimble, CEO of 18 Feet and Rising, and Jonathan Weiss, co-founder of the Comms Lab, to talk more about purpose-led advertising and how together they are leading the change in how advertising is done. Duncan Goose is the founder and CEO of Global Ethics Limited, the One Foundation and One Drinks, the UK's leading ethical drinks brand that donates its profit to clean water projects. Duncan was formerly a business development director and a board director of a WPP PLC subsidiary, where he saw through a buyout and subsequent merger into the J. Water Thompson Advertising Group. Duncan has celebrated numerous milestones during one's 12-year history, including a Great Britain Award, European Entrepreneur of the Year Award, UK Entrepreneur of the Year Award, the Beacon Fellowship, and an International Hero Award in recognition of his role in continuing efforts to bring clean water to the 663 million people without asking to access to it. But his proudest moment remains celebrating raising over £15 million for water projects and changing the lives of over 3.2 million people. One's aim is to raise £20 million for water projects by 2020. And you can help by picking up a bottle of One Water, Just Water, Origins or Gin at Starbucks, Holland and Barrett, UK airports at World Duty Free and Amazon.co.uk. Because when you drink one, the world drinks two. Welcome, Duncan. It is great to have you on Sustainable today. Thank you very much for having me. So what motivated you to take the step and create a water brand that gives away its profits to fund projects that help people gain access to clean water? Uh, it's it's a, it kind of an interesting story and, and quite relevant at the moment, given what's going on. But in uh, between 1998 and 2000, I rode a motorbike around the world, um, a long time before you and McGregor did, and certainly without his budget. Um, but in uh, October 1998, I was in a Category 5 hurricane in Honduras um, that killed over 10,000 people and did over $6 billion worth of damage to the country. And I lived through that, and at one point there was no food, no water, um, and it was just a struggle to um, really to, to, to get by. Um, and eventually the American military came in and um, I managed to, to get there and they, they offered me a ready-to-eat meal. And I said, actually, what I really want is a bottle of water. And, um, and they said, well, we're really sorry, we can't give any water because it's such a precious commodity for us. And I, I literally had to bribe the squaddy to get a bottle out of the compact. So I think that was kind of an early learning for me about... Um, about the, the value of water, and particularly in countries that, that suffer uh, trauma through um, natural disasters or, you know, like many of the African countries that just don't have access to clean water. And that's something that affects over 663 million people today. So, yeah, through adversity came something like positive, I think. 
Yeah. So then you had this experience and you kind of came back into, I suppose, trying to adjust to normal life after you'd cycled around the world. Did you go back into your normal job and did it take a while for inspiration to strike for you to to reach out or decide to create the one brand? Or was it something that you knew straight away after that experience that you wanted to do? No, it actually it actually took a few years. So I went back into the, the advertising marketing business into um, ultimately into Jay Walter Thompson and I got really interested in I started to see reports being written about CSR corporate social responsibility which was quite a new thing back then and this is early 2000 uh, 2000 2001 and um, I got really interested in what CSR was and how businesses were using it um, and then at the same time um, that was happening. A group of friends and I were in a pub in London on Grand National Day, and one of them said to me, did I know there were over a billion people in the world that didn't have access to clean water? I said, no. And he said, look, we're all marketeers. Why don't we create a bottled water brand and give all the money away? And of course, everybody had far too much beer and thought this was a great idea. And that was really what I suppose was the, the sort of match that lit my touch paper. And uh, it started to how you could create a business that did that and also one that helped companies uh, really push the CSR entries in a slightly different way. So, yeah, so it took three or four years before, uh, before it really came together. I love that. So then what challenges have you faced in making bottled water and your company environmentally friendly? Well, I, I think one of the things to remember here is that, that bottled water, by and large, for a lot of people, is a bit of a, a sort of social no-no. It's, you know, we've got perfectly good tap water in this country. Um, you know, why is there a need for bottled water in the first place? Um, and I think that's always an interesting debate for me. And um, the one that I look at is more about packaging and, uh, you know, how we use packaging. Um, do we really need bananas that are shrink-wrapped or you know, tomatoes or, or, you know, whatever it happens to be. So I think for me, it was like if we were going to do something in this space, not only did you have to have the kind of charitable kicker of what we wanted to do and why, which is every time you buy a bottle of wine, it's helping somebody in the developing country get access to water. But to do that with a with an environmental conscience as well as a social one. So even from day one, we've always been very acutely aware of our role on that, which is why um, we continue to invest in um, making things the best they can be. So the amount of plastic we use today in a bottle is almost half that of 10 years ago. We found ways continually to what's called lightweight the bottles. We changed the caps, we changed the uh, the amount of recycled material that we can to put into bottles and so on and so forth. So it's always been like a double stream for me, which is how do you do good uh, both socially consciously as well as environmentally. Mm. And I, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting you starting off with why 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 do you need bottled water? And I think for me, you know, I've been one of those people of, oh God, you know, why do we buy bottled water? But what I'm hearing you say is that bottled water is actually incredibly helpful, especially in disaster situations when you need water to drink. And even that awareness of what you've just highlighted there is that we're actually using half the less of, you know, we're using less plastic than 10 years ago, which means our, our technology and our means of production are improving. And that for me is something that I, I had no awareness of, of, of how much our technology is kind of coming on. Yeah, and I think the whole industry is looking at how, how do you always improve 
what we have. So there's a lot of plant-based plastics that are being trialled. There's, um, you know, we're looking at can you actually put uh, water into cans rather than aluminium cans rather than plastic, because aluminium tends to be much, you know, much more uh, higher recycled than than plastic is. Um, we're looking at cardboard packaging and so on and so forth. So we're always interested in that um, that kind of area. I think the, the thing for us is that, um, you know, what we try and say to consumers is if you're going to buy a bottle of water, try and buy one that's actually going to do something more than just make profit for, you know, big multinational shareholders. You know, if you can buy one that's going to help some child not die from diarrheal disease uh, through investing in clean water projects in their community or enable children to go to school rather than walk four or five hours to collect water every day. You know, that's, that's where you want to look. You know, that's the kind of decision you want to make at the point of purchase. Yeah. And I, I, I kind of like what you're saying there because, I mean, it's it comes across as really practical and really realist because we're not going to automatically shift into a society where we don't need plastic bottles and we're not automatically going to stop buying plastic bottles of water. Um, but being able to exactly, as you say, make a better choice and realise that it can be helping solve one of the world's problems at the same time is, for me, really kind of quite empowering. Yeah. And I, and I think it's about choice. I mean, there's a lot of debates in terms of in California, where they just ban bottled water in a, in a city, uh, which I think is a bit misguided because it then forces people to drink, you know, perhaps carbonated drinks or uh, you know, high juice content drinks and things like that, which are loaded with sugar. So actually, by taking away the healthy choice, actually you're doing people a disservice. Um, but yeah, the, the different schools of thought on that. Yeah. No, it's 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 really interesting to kind of like start thinking about all of this. So, you're big on water, and you recently attended a conference at World Water Week. So, then, what are the challenges we are facing as a collective society on Earth with regards to our access to clean water? So, I, I think there are a couple of things on this. One of which is that um, when I started this, there were a billion people in the world that didn't have access to clean water. That number has now come down to 663 million. So there's been massive improvements in the availability of water to people in developing countries. Um, but to, and the, the world's governments got together in 2015 and said, look, we want to take that number to zero by 2030. So that, that's great, you know, that people can sign up to a really big goal like that. It's fantastic. The challenge is that in order to do that, it's going to cost about $114 billion a year to get to that point. And currently, there's only about between 24 to $29 billion a year being invested in water programs. So there's a massive shortfall in terms of available money to invest in programs like that. So that, that's sort of one challenge. The second one is, is really around um, population growth. You know, water is a finite resource on on this planet. You know, bulk of the planet is made up of seawater rather than clean water. But as population grows, there are greater demands placed on water, not only in terms of drinking water, but actually in how we use water, whether that's in agricultural production or in manufacturing and so on and so forth. So I think there's people are having to get a little bit more savvy about their utilization of water and how they're um, how they're uh, using it. And a lot of the stuff going on at the conference was around um, uh, zero return water, which is basically you get a factory that produces, I don't know, something that uses water in the process. I think genes for the sake of argument because they're quite high water intensive. But actually they continually recycle the amount of water that they use 
and never put any back into into the sort of land space. So there's a lot of talk around that sort of thing. Um, and, and investment, as I said, that's the other big challenge. It's just having the amount of money needed uh, to really try and eradicate this problem for people. Yeah. And it, it, it kind of brings it into huge awareness because, I mean, £114 billion per year to make sure that everybody in the world has clean water. It's quite a, you know, it's, it's I'm, I'm kind of like almost shocked to hear that's how much it would cost. Yeah, it's it's not a. But the, the interesting thing about it is, is if you think back to the UK, you know, a hundred years ago, um, we used to have what we call parish pumps. So you know, every community had a village green, and on the village green there would be a pump, and it's called a parish pump. You know, it's the pump for the parish, and people used to walk there and pump water and go out. You know, but today we're very lucky that we have funding pipes and tap water and water systems that exist here, and for the developing world. They've kind of been on this sort of cycle of drilling a hole in the ground, putting a, a you know a pump on it, a parish pump, for want of a better word, and that breaking, and then somebody else coming in, drilling another hole, putting another pump on the top, it's breaking. And, and actually, the world's governments have said, we're not doing this anymore. We're actually going to put in infrastructure. You know, we're going to put in water utility companies that will pipe water to communities that will have uh, you know more service-led uh, solutions rather than just a you know here's a pump, it'll it'll break. Um, so it's fascinating to see how the world is tilting on that access, and that's why the cost of doing it is so expensive. But it'll be done once, and it'll be done right, and the investment will go in, and, and hopefully that will change the world for, forever. Yeah, yeah, and see how much we can we can bring those numbers down even more. And it's it's kind of fascinating to sit and think, isn't it, that it's it's not about the short term solution. How do we actually create the infrastructure that makes this a long term sustainable solution? Exactly. And that, that's absolutely right on the money with that. It's about sustainability. Yeah. So then how do you decide on the partners that you work with? Do you then, you know, do you have criteria like, for example, only supporting, you know, organisations who are putting in the infrastructure? How do you how do you work with them? So we usually the, the So we have a separate foundation called the One Foundation. Um, and that brings in consultant or consultants every three to four years where we review the strategy of the foundation and what we're funding and how we're funding it and more importantly, who we'll fund it with. So if I go back 10 years, the world was quite happy, as I said, drilling holes in the ground, putting a pump on the top. Um, and today, that is no longer the way things are being done. So we don't do that anymore. Um, we will repair ones that are uh, broken, and we'll create training schools to educate engineers around, um, you know, how to do that. Um, but actually, the the bulk of our money is now going into what we call a systems-led approach, which is putting in, you know, pipes and taps and pumps and water utility companies um, that will uh, that will create a sustainable solution. So, if I go back ten years, 100% of our money kind of went into, as I said, drilling a hole in the ground, putting a pump on the top. And now 70% of our money goes into funding systems. Um, 10% we keep back for disasters and the rest of it is used for uh, going around and repairing pumps. So it's totally changed. And needless to say, the partners that we work with have totally changed as well because it's it's a very different type of organization that's doing the work that we do today than it was the, the work that we did 10 years ago. 
Hmm. Yeah, and I, I I like that reminder of what you're saying because it's we we have to start somewhere, and then as we progress, we we have to look for different systems as we identify solutions that are more and more sustainable, leading to that long term sustainable solution. So that's a really useful reminder. Yeah, yeah, it will it will change the world for the better. Yeah, no, I, I I like that. So then, what have been the biggest challenges for you then in creating the one brand? I, I think that the challenge for us in the bottled water sector is that it's a very low margin business. Um, people, I know people will think that's a crazy thing to say because they'll pay, you know, a pound or something for a bottle and they'll go, hey, can it possibly cost a pound? And it's not the bottlers like us that make the money, it's the retailers, it's the sellers of, of um, the sellers of bottled water or any soft drink or any product that, that make that kind of margin. So it's a very low margin business to be in. You have to work very hard uh, to make money in it. So that's always been one challenge. Um, it's dominated by by some very big companies, the Nestle's, the Danone, uh, Danone's, um, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, and in the UK, Highland Spring, and, and people like that. Um, so it's very competitive. And, um, and when you're kind of fighting over, you know, point, you know, tenths of a penny, um, on a case price, that's kind of the level of detail that people will go down to in order to do a deal. Um, so that, that's always been a challenge. And I think the other thing is just that we we decided very early on that we wanted to make as much money as we possibly could to give away. And that's a trade-off because normally in a business, you make as much money as you possibly can to reinvest back into the business, to grow it, to make as much money as you can to reinvest back into the business and grow it and grow it and grow it. So we've always been slightly hamstrung by the fact of do we give this money away or do we invest it in ourselves? And that's always a, a, a difficult thing to, to trade off. Um, but it's part of you know it's part of the business model that we created. So we we have to face it for that to work for ourselves. Yeah. So then, how do you balance that? You know, kind of like the entrepreneurial pool to invest and invest and grow the business or give away the profits. I mean, what 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 guidelines do you have in place that kind of help you know what's the the best decision for you guys to make? Well, we have um, we have a really good team. I think is the first thing. So they're all very pragmatic, and we have a team that looks after the foundation, and we have a team that looks after the business, and we all meet. Um, regularly, whether it's weekly or, or monthly for board meetings and things like that. So there will always be this discussion about, um, you know, the foundation wants this kind of money to go and do that kind of project. And the business will say, well, that's fine. We can release that now. Or, um, you know, we've got some challenges because we've got to invest in some new bottle molds next month. So we can't release it now, but you can have it in three months' time. So it's really a kind of an open dialogue about the needs of both sides of that equation but everybody is very clear that you know we exist to change people's lives that's why this brand exists and if we're not doing that then we're not doing our job yeah no I, and, and I love that because I mean what I'm hearing you say is it really is about getting a good team in place and making sure that you're having continued communication that allows you to achieve what is the objective which is to make an impact and change people's lives yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's what we're trying to. Yeah. So then, who do you most admire, and why then, Duncan? That's a good question. Um, I think there are loads of um, loads of amazing people that I've kind of come across over the years, um, and I can pick any number of people for any number of different reasons. I think the one that I would probably always come back to is I think Ranulph Fines. So Ranulph Fines, who. 
he just strikes me as one of those really bloody-minded people <laughs> who sets himself a really difficult task and then goes and gets on with it and doesn't complain along the way. And he's a bit of a visionary in terms of the things that he's done, but he's just so determined to succeed um, that he will just push himself beyond things that most normal people would, you know, would never, never undertake. So, um, yeah, I think he's a pretty special guy. Cool. I like that. I'm going to have to go and <laughs> read up a little bit more there, especially about that determination to succeed and overcome all odds. So then, what is one of your most favourite memories of a time or place in nature and why? Uh, this is, this is, well, there's a, can I have two? You can have two. <laughs> I, I, I'm more than happy to give you two. two. Uh, um, so one of them would be on my motorbike travels. Um, and I had just ridden through India into Pakistan and through Pakistan. And I just crossed the border into Iran. And it took me, it was quite a difficult thing to achieve, getting visas and that sort of stuff. Um, but I'd got into this, this I love deserts. Always, I don't know why, but I always love deserts. And I was on this road in the middle of this desert in Iran. And if you can just picture this sort of long tarmac road, just disappearing off into the distance. And then a desert with like mountains on either side of them. And that, that's where I was. I was the only person there. There was no wind. There was, there was nothing. And it was it was almost like being in a in a vacuum. It was you couldn't hear anything, and it was the most amazing experience. Um, and I just turned the engine off the motorbike and just sat there for a while and just absorbed it. And it was it was like I was the only person on earth. It was quite incredible. Um, so that would be one that I think was was very special on a personal basis. And the other one would be um, in a place called Takana, which is in northern Kenya. Um, and we, they had a horrific drought in uh, 2011, I think it was now. Um, and we put a million pounds on the ground um, four days after being notified about the humanitarian disaster that was unfolding there. And we said, look, we're, we're going to do this. We got a million pounds on the ground. It kept people alive long enough for the government to come in and backfill with, with other stuff. So um, that for me is a very special place. And it, to give you an idea, you, you fly into Nairobi and then you take an early flight up country and then it's a couple of days in a 4 by 4 before you're really sort of where you're going. There's no phone signal up there. There's no radio signal up there. It's just you and your vehicle and the people you're with and the local tribes people um, who still to this day wander around in loincloths, for want of a better word, but very traditional dress. Um, sometimes carrying AK forty seven, sometimes carrying, you know, other things. Um, but that, that is a very special place in the world, and it's so rich and full of colour, and the communities are amazing. And to have a tent there, pitched in the middle of again, literally like a desert in the middle of the night, was just a very, very special place. Beautiful. Yeah, no, it sounds like it. So then how do experiences like the two that you've shared, you know, going on the, the motorbike and having that experience of being the only person on the long road with the desert and the mountains and then going to, to, to ugh, I can't say it properly, to Kana in, Nor in northern Kenya and having that tent and that experience of being in the richness with the vivid colours and being part of the, the local community. How do these experiences influence and impact your own commitment to helping to create a sustainable world? 
I think both of those underline one thing, which is that we live in a really fragile planet. Um, and certainly communities are, uh, are very exposed to that sometimes. Um, you know, deserts are there because they're there. You know, nothing's going to grow there or very little is going to grow there. Um, you know, the people in Takana, they are goat herders by traditional camel herders. Um, but their their existence is, is very, very fragile. You only have to have a slight knock to the ecosystem um, up there as a drought. Um, and it has massive implications for them. You know, livestock will just drop down dead. That's their livelihood. That's their income. You know, they have nothing left. Um, and it was it was horrific because when the when the drought was on, I, I went and met some people and I got chatting to a lady who just lost her child who was the same age as my son. And, and they'd been walking for days to collect water. Not hours, they'd been literally walking for days and people had just dropped down dead on, on the way. They had no choice but to walk and, and, you know, very sadly, a lot of them didn't make it. So I think it's having respect for the world in which we live and also the people that live in it. And I think it's our duty as, uh, you know, citizens on this planet to watch out for those people that don't have the luxury of the kind of life that we lead here. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's really moving. I've actually got tears, tears in my eyes listening to that description because I just think, my God, being... God, I'm getting really emotional. I'm having one of those days, but just Sorry. actually, no, it's 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 fine. But just thinking of being that mother of having to walk and the whole the whole experience. I mean, just just as a thought experiment of imagining it for me is impactful. I have no idea what it would be like to actually experience it firsthand or be there as a witness to understand what's going on. Yeah, I cried a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's just something wrong, you know. With, with yeah, but you see, and sadly, you see these things on the news every day. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's what we need to do to make it better, I suppose, is, is the question that we need to ask. Yeah. And it, it, it kind of comes back because for me, this is a, a real, um, kind of a like insightful and a tangible um, example of a result. You know, for me, business can be this force of good and we can get so easy. You know, some people can get, get up and blaming business for what's happening in the world. But to be in a position, you know, like you said with Takana, to be able to turn around and say, you know, we've actually got one million pounds that we can go in and start doing stuff there as the governments and everything mobilise. I mean, that surely must give you a real sense of satisfaction and purpose with what you're achieving. I think it, it, it does, but uh, it's also it's always the always the frustrating thing about why can't we do more? You know, why can't we do it faster? Why can't we get that 663 million people closer to having water in you know, five years rather than 13 years? You know, why is it going to take us that long to do it? You know, how do you mobilise, as you say, mobilise business to to create that change in the world? Um, you know, we, we all have a duty of care, I think, to, to the planet and to the people that live here. And it's like, actually, if you can bring people together and harness that, then, you, you know, you can do an awful lot of good. Yeah, no, definitely. And I, I think the results that you've achieved kind of speak for that as well. So what is the one thing that you want people to take away from our conversation today then, Duncan? Uh, oh, um Great question. I, I think for me, it's um, the choices that consumers make. So the, the UK bottled water market is, is worth over £2 billion in the UK, and it's growing at about 10% a year. Um, 
and you know for me it's the more people can buy into ethical brands like one um, doesn't necessarily need to be in, in bottled water but the more consumer power can help push uh, businesses forward to do the right things to make sure that all businesses are contributing towards the greater good um, has to be a driver I think and um, you know whether that's looking out for the fair trademark or um, you know whatever those kind of accreditations are whether it's B Corp or carbon neutral it's like we have power in our pockets to, to make purchasing decisions and the more the better purchasing decisions that people make the better the world will be as a result of it so you know, for me, it's like people, anytime people are buying water, if they can buy a bottle like one, that has to be a good choice to make. And, um, and if you can't buy ours, you know, buy something that will do some good somewhere. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I think that's a great reminder. I love that. We've all got the power in our pockets and it's really up to us what we do with our money and what we do with our money and what we spend it on will then result in quicker changes. Yes, absolutely. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for joining me today, Duncan. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. If listening to the show has inspired you to find out more about nature-centred business, go to www.earthself.org and click on the Nature-Centred tab. And as always, if you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please get in touch. Next time on Sustainable, I'm speaking to sustainability thought leader Laura Storm about the key changes that need to happen to create a sustainable world and how businesses can help with this transition. New episodes of Sustainable are released every Tuesday. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud. Get them sent straight to your inbox by signing up at www.earthself.org or come on over and join the conversation on our LinkedIn podcast page.